Good afternoon and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, we have a blazing surprise headline today. Not all candidates for public office in Connecticut are boring retreads. There is someone interesting running for office, for a state office this year. And not only that, he's a newcomer to New Haven, but an old comer to the New Haven, to the Connecticut political scene. His name is Ken Krajewski, and he is the Green Party candidate for attorney general. Hello, hello Paul. Good Thanks. morning, Ken. Thanks for coming on air. Uh, Nora Grace Flood is at the controls or something. We're, uh, we're good. Okay. Ken Krajewski, welcome to WNHHFM. Tell us why you're running for attorney general. I'm running because the Green Party is an institution in Connecticut that has had a ballot line on the statewide offices for many years. And this ballot line um, mandates attention and energy. And we want to have a conversation with the Office of the Attorney General about how state of Connecticut litigates against the citizens who sue it and how the Office of the Attorney mm -hmm. General sets policy for the state of Connecticut. All right. And before we get into the specifics of who you are, Ken, and why you're running, I want to ask you about a, a little uh, pet peeve of mine that's kind of interesting that involves the Attorney General. Okay. And that is about the, uh, are you okay with the headphones? Or They're a little loud. Can we okay. lower the volume? Yeah, please? we could do that for Sorry. sure. Sorry. No worry about that. So the Office of the Attorney General does get into, as you pointed out, Ken, a lot of crucial issues in Connecticut. People don't realize what, a hot, what an important office it is, whether it's at the front line of tobacco, public health legislation, or civil rights, or schools desegregation. We'll be getting into that. They were at the forefront of the issue for the past 30 years. The, uh, a few weeks ago, a very interesting kind of journalistic hit job occurred in town. And it's the kind of thing you're a former journalist, Ken, you and I worked in the alternative press. It's the kind of thing that was a little bit like what we used to do from the left. But this is from people from the right. And you and I would probably think they do something fundamentally different and less honest, but we'll get to that. Project Veritas. It's a, it's a kind of kamikaze right-wing billionaire-funded outfit that does deceptive reporting, whether it's stealing the diaries of presidential candidates or they pose as people to deceive a subject who's liberal or lefty and then gets video that it takes out of context and then blows up into a big issue that right-wing politicians glom onto and then get left-wing politicians and media to agree about and change the whole conversation. That happened in Greenwich the it, other day. Project Veritas sent a woman, and then all tells the whole story. It looked like she went to a bar with some guy who was a mid-level administrator at a Coscop school. And it sounded like she was, from what I could tell watching it, she was trying to make him think she was interested in him romantically, and he was trying to impress her. So she was pretending that she was part of this mythical liberal take over the schools and never mind parents and turn kids, get pedophiles running rampant and got him to pretend that he somehow was able to weed out anyone who was Catholic to ever be a teacher and just say really stupid stuff. Yeah. And they, they just did a few clips from that to make it look like this was policy. But William Tong is the attorney general of Connecticut, and he obviously did, doesn't like Project Veritas. But all the other politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, rushed to say, this is terrible. Fire the guy. We have no, we are not going to be for this kind of bigotry. 
and bias and William Tong, whose office oversees that you're running for civil rights probes, is investigating a civil rights violation. How would you have handled that? And what was your take on it? So I, I had two or three thoughts. Project Veritas went to trial in the, the District of Columbia, uh, United States District Court recently right. because it 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 hired a woman to create a fake identity and infiltrate in 2016 a Democratic Party uh, campaign operation shop, like political operatives who are well-known within the Democratic Party. Um, and, and these people were doing rapid response on the ground to Trump rallies. And, and this woman infiltrated Project Veritas with a fake name and a fake biogra- biography and a fake resume. And she surreptitiously recorded hundreds and hundreds of hours and got access to things. And I was reading the motion to dismiss and some of the pretrial motions because I'm really fascinated because I was thinking about, OK, I want to know how Project Veritas operates. And the best way to find that out is when they're defending themselves from a lawsuit. Um, and reading about it, I was <clears throat> kind of shocked at the manner in which they employed subterfuge. And this is not the first time they've been sued and they have this uh, silly llama thing that comes on and demands corrections of journalists who do not. Well, they wanted to cover it acorn and they skewed a video and people yeah. felt they had to be bullied into treating it as legitimate discourse when that, you know, as there's some big conspiracy, they did a portion person trying to sell parts and they, and it's just not credible. No. And that's why I, my, my biggest issue with somebody like attorney general Tong wading into the race and, and elevating project Veritas and picking on project Veritas is a, I think everybody's concerned about what the school administrator from Costco said. Connecticut has a long history of school segregation. The attorney general's office got a bottle of champagne from John Rowland. I remember that. Dick after, Lumicall. yeah, after uh, they they famously they a, a, a round of the Sheffers O'Neill school desegregation. Yeah, and, and so, you know, and that that forever changed Milo Sheff in his life. Milo was never the same kid after feeling that defeat knowing the state was against them yeah and and like that's a hard burden for a kid like milo to carry and and for john roland to to celebrate it and dick blumenthal to accept the bottle of champagne it's just so uh, william tong has actually been relatively good on chef versus o'neill according to and Watch. we're going to get that later in the show so uh, so one would think that this would be an opportunity for attorney general tong to use his civil rights office to investigate and the, and the thing is, when you investigate that particular piece, of course, you're going to capture Project Veritas in your investigation. But to go after and say, I, I'm going to investigate Project Veritas, it, it to me, it, it changes the focus. And it- so your criticism is not that he's investigating the school administrator for bragging to some woman he's trying to impress that he doesn't let Catholics teach at the school because he said, I'm investigating both sides. And yeah. he says, I also going to look at how Project Veritas operated. You think he shouldn't be doing that? I mean, why give Project Veritas any credibility whatsoever? Why spend dollars investigating them? Because but I, what I'm trying to figure out, Ken, is which part of the investigation you object to. I, I object to going after Project Veritas simply because they did that reporting. We all know who they are. Let's focus on our own house. Let's not worry about the provocateurs. So what, about the, what about that? Um, what about them he's also investigating the school right whether there's discrimination are you think that's okay that's that's that should be what the civil rights office that he well he says he is looking at created 
is for. That's that's the kind of thing that it's for. So he should be a Project Veritas, the Sleesborg, dishonest, illegal, operating, cruel, right wing propaganda outfit comes in and puts out a video. You think Tong should respond by saying this is legitimate concern, so I'm going to investigate it? Well, what the what the person said on the video, you have to. And the, the problem with Project Veritas is they're going to sit there and say, well, this is journalism, so we're not giving you our raw tapes, which is where there's going to be an argument and a fight. And and um, you can subpoena raw tapes and some journalistic agencies will turn them over. Some won't. And I, I think. To me, it's really frustrating that we have to spend time considering what provocateurs, especially hardcore right wing, you know, provocateurs do and that we have to waste our time. But aren't, but we're not wasting our time if we react to what they revealed the guy said and investigate that guy. No, we should. It, I mean, that's what I don't like is the reactionary, you know, uh, uh, aspect of it. So Kevin Rennie put up a story He's a columnist in Hartford last week on his website talking about uh, former Senator Alex Bergstein's divorce. And Kevin has been covering this extensively. And what he did was he reported in difficult detail about probable, likely sexual assaults that happened at the Bergstein house uh, in 2014, sexual assaults of children, young high school girls that were recorded on video. Wow. When when these girls were uh, intoxicated and blackout drunk, essentially. And wow. to me, it, it, and Kevin Rennie was talking about how Greenwich Country Day and Brunswick School were involved in helping to cover this up. That, to me, is is a crazier civil rights problem in Greenwich mm. than what Project Veritas is. Oh, we agree on all that. This is all agreed. But what I'm, I, I don't totally understand your position. I really want to understand it. Okay. So you're saying Tonks should not be in, investigating Project Veritas and what they do because we all know they're sleazebag dishonest and we shouldn't give them the time of day by investigating them and raising these complicated First Amendment issues with, with journalism. But you are saying that he should react to what he what they sleazily and crop audio video captured this guy allegedly saying and he should use state resources to investigate possible civil rights violation by that school administrator i think that's an appropriate way of putting it i i don't i, I mean the thing is in that investigation he's gonna have to get project veritas's videos <clears throat> is it do you does tong as the officer uh, charged in the state constitution with dealing with not-for-profits does he have the authority to go ahead and, mm. and investigate project veritas and it's not-for-profit wing and whether or not you know what they're doing is yes he should he could but the question is he has limited so what is it that you object because he did say i'm investigating the what this administrator said so he's going to do that i just my objection is focusing on Project Veritas oh, and not. Okay, so I want to hit you from both sides of this question. Sure. The first side of me says, come on, Ken, how can you let the right wingers drag us along with this, this outfit that has an outfit, a history of illegal and dishonest propaganda and use state resources to launch an investigation about what they got some guy to say to impress a woman at a bar? 
I don't want to use state. But the thing is, we want to state resources. He's investigating a civil rights possible violation based on what this guy said to impress him at a bar and very heavily edited video. I want to see the entire video. I don't want to see just the heavily edited video because we know we can't trust Project Veritas. So then you are saying Tong needs to wade into that difficult thing. He has. Well, because because he said he's going to investigate this, the alleged civil rights violations. He needs to see the entirety of the. the so what are you critical of? He's put emphasis. So he shouldn't have emphasized that he's interested in what they might have done wrong. Yeah. So I'm going to say, even though my worldview is yours and not his. Yes. I'm going to say that I think that he was right to bring that up. He's the only official who didn't feel he had to just worship the altar of this completely dishonest, rapacious right wing outfit. And, and I'm of the opinion that you know, if this if this project democracy, I think that's the name of the lawsuit in in Washington, D.C. succeeds, they're going to wipe Project Veritas off the map. So you say we don't need to bother with that here. That's what I'm saying. Let's like, not give him the time of day. Let's let's subpoena his things and and like do look. So it's more the emphasis of Tong's public comments. He does need to go. You agree he needs to go emphasize. It does need to ask for the video. Yeah. Which they're not going to want to give because they're not going to reveal. So let me go from the other side now. Uh huh. So you use the word provocatory. You and I have a history of questioning the way traditional journalism was done. We work for the alternative press. People can call us a provocateur. I would argue that you have a history of fantastic, good trouble provocateur, whether it's questioning Jim Calhoun and the, and the money he got. So when the right wing does it, are we hypocritical for not liking it? Or is there a difference from the way they do it? There's a difference in the way they do it. This isn't ABC going undercover at Food Well, I want to ask about Food Lion next. This isn't ABC going now, undercover. Now, the problem with Food Lion is, so, that, so people remember that was in the last century. ABC had someone apply for a job at a supermarket, right? And, mm -hmm. and they went undercover to record crimes created by basically health and safety violations by this company, they aired the video. The company sued and said, you got the job under false pretenses, which you and I were troubled by that, right? So yeah. you're not allowed to do this. So why is Project Veritas allowed to do the false pretenses, but Foodline in a much more noble so, pursuit couldn't? Well, so um, Project Veritas actually uh, escaped those uh claims in the in the case in washington dc that i'm talking about like the breach of fiduciary duty claims and all yeah, of those things um it's, it's, it was on a motion to dismiss and the and the court um cited that there is some public interest and and, and so um but it's it's the it's the dishonest manipulation of the footage and and the manner in which they they edit things like that whole thing that james o'keefe did with acorn and and you know, Acorn was an important community organization in Hartford that did important things to better people's lives in Hartford. And his dishonest, what I think the right wing is very good at doing is knowing how to press the buttons of, of the left wing and Get force them to react. Of course, like as though who everyone's against pedophilia, it's terrible. That doesn't mean that there's a ring operating with Hillary Clinton outside of a, a pizzeria in Washington where the QAnon guy goes, shoots it up as, yes, as yes. the right wing provocateurs make money off of spreading those stories. Exactly. And so the, like it's Al Franken has to resign because right wing provocateurs push this story against him. Meanwhile, Matt Getz in Florida has crazy allegations against him and he's still in. And so the left, the, the right wing understands the weaknesses of the left wing. And is able to use it against and it. the left wing caves and the, always, always. And it's so frustrating because you're like you. The right wing is literally in bed with Nazis. So would you consider Project Veritas journalist? 
That's a tough question. It's 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 you know, I would not. Paul. I had people ask whether or not I was a journalist after I, I got pinched for, for taking pictures of Jody Rowland. So, you know, Ken Dixon wrote a story and said, you know, be be wary of anybody who uses highfalutin appellations and calls themselves journalists. But I'm like, wow. it's it's it or it's it's to me, it's wow. it's. Right, because there's this like mainstream corporate news idea of what a journalist is that doesn't push the button, that doesn't question exactly. And, power. And look, yeah, I, I went to Newhouse at Syracuse. I was trained in how. In the, oh, you were working for the Harvard Avenue. You were a reporter. Yeah, I was a reporter. At, at I, corporate I, news daily. Yeah. I, I worked at multiple daily news. Yeah. The the Waterbury Republican American after the Jim Calhoun incident, the Waterbury Republican American didn't pretend that I ever worked there. You know what I'm saying? They they disavow any knowledge of my previous employment. But like I worked there for five years when I was in high school and college and afterwards. And like so journalism is a broad swath of activities that involves. I guess the difference I would make is that even if you're an opinion journalist, an advocate journalist, you're telling your reader and your viewer, I'm just in the truth and the facts. I'm not going to go in there dishonestly, commit a crime and then show you something that isn't really what happened but just purely to advance an ideological narrative. The, the line between propaganda yeah. and journalism is very thin. And, you know, one of the things that I admire about the post-World War II uh, and liberal democratic order is that the Russians, the British, and the Americans decided to prosecute propagandists at Nuremberg. And I think that's really important. Because we have to understand the difference between speech advocacy that does harm and intolerant speech versus but you don't want But you don't want Tong to go after Project Veritas. Because what purpose will it serve? Because it, 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 to me, it's a target. Is Tong going to be able to shut down Project Veritas? No. No. Is, is Tong going to be able to prevent them from operating in Connecticut? No. Is he going to be able to change them? No. It's it's there has to be a different concerted strategy. And, and my my theory, this could be a uh, I don't think Tong can win civil damages from Project Veritas in a manner that would bankrupt them. I I feel like the only way to put the racist genie back in the bottle that Trump unleashed when he went down that elevator like seven years ago. Now, the only way is to bankrupt the racists. Right. That's the only way to do it is put them out of business, make it unprofitable and you're saying there are already cases doing that with uh the new york times case with the with project veritas yeah it's not the new york times it's it's, it's as well, i said there is one with them that's coming oh out there is I, i'm not aware of, i'm not aware oh, of they've that been, they've been fighting journalists not to have to reveal their internal documents against the new york times and you know. and so the the question is is because new york times wrote about their tactics and they sued the times yes and so they they're actually are suing the journalists who did real reporting on them and they, they they're probably i i feel like it's it's appropriate to call them propagandists but there may be times when the state attorney general doesn't have to waste his his powder on that no and and like there the problem with project veritas is once in a while even a blind pig finds a truffle right in the in the course of their manipulation and their information warfare they may unearth a nugget of truth and the question is 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 that nugget of truth that has been manipulated by you know, questionable reporting. Harry Gross, who comes from the Project Veritas school and manages the radio station when he doesn't have COVID, writes in, real reporting, LOL, what a joke. Thanks, Harry. You're listening to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. And we have one of the most interesting candidates you should know about this year running for state office, Ken Krajewski. He's running for attorney general from the Green Party. He has decades of first journalist experience. 
and then legal experience shaking up the state. Let's talk about that. Where'd you grow up, Ken? I grew up in Watertown, Paul. Watertown, where yes. our former police chief who got run out of town just became deputy chief. I, I noticed that's a small town. It is. It is. It was um, It was extraordinarily segregated. I did not understand it when that I was little. That makes sense to me because we used to go out of town and she came from East Haven and police that way. Yeah. It, I didn't understand when I went to Fletcher W. Judson Elementary School on Hamilton Ave in Watertown, why there were only two black children in the entire elementary school. And that, that was in, it, I, I, I was there in 78, 79, 80, 81, you know, 82. And then my parents put me in a parochial Catholic school for sixth, seventh and eighth. And then I went to Holy Cross High School. And uh, my freshman orientation speech was given by a congressman named John Rowland. Oh, wow. And I immediately knew he was somebody to avoid even when I was 14. <laughs> well, tell me about that experience growing up in Watertown. What, it, it, how does that figure into your running for attorney general? It was a suburban car centric experience. That is, as I look at it now, I look at the suburbs and I say, this is a creation of racism. Across the street when I was little, it was all farms. It was, there were cows and we would go fly our green giant kite in the, in the cow pasture across the street from us. And slowly, you, you, my, the, the house that I grew up in used to be in an airport. It was at the top of a hill on uh, what they call the Seven Hills in Watertown. And um, you think about what political de facto and de jure forces allowed Watertown to become a suburban uh, expanse where all this farmland, like Lynn's Dairy Farm, Panelitis's farm, all these farms got swallowed up by single family houses on one acre lots. And, and you have this, this zoning rulings, you know, zoning regulatory regime that forces you to have all, it, it's, it's very car centric. And to me, the use of the car as a tool to propagate segregation and racial and economic because, isolation. Because car ownership is racially. It's, and, and, and the thing is, the creation of the interstate highways in the 1950s and 60s allowed brain drain and, and white flight to take place. So you have all of these white people who can so afford before cars. we go on with the rest of your personal story, Ken, fast forward to you running for attorney general. How would your concerns about legalized de facto de jure segregation that you saw as an elementary school kid, how would that impact something you might do as attorney general? Well, so I, I really, uh, and it, I really am interested in um, regionalization and uh, eliminating 169 different fiefdoms. And, and this is not a popular thing to say because everybody is so secure. Is that, that Ned Lamont, when he was elected the first time, said he was going to deal with that. It got nowhere. What, what can an attorney general do with regionalism? So I think there's a, there's a number of things that the attorney general can do. I think one of the most important things happening in the state of Connecticut that nobody talks about is, is an insurance agency called CURMA, the Connecticut Interlocal Risk Management Wasn't Agency. That founded by Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. Exactly. And 164 out of 169 towns um, share an insurance company. There are like five municipalities that have opted out, uh, like Hartford, Waterbury. They're self-insured. Um, we are and, New Haven too. Yes. And well, no, New Haven's part of Kerma. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Justin Elliker is on the board of directors of Kerma mm. in his position as the mayor of New Haven. And I've I've long thought that the attorney general can team up with Kerma to deal with um executive branch police power abuses. Because Kerma has this wealth of knowledge about how many cops are sued and what the payouts are. And it's a public institution, essentially, right? Because all of its members are municipalities. It was founded by CCM. And so even though it's a private corporation, 
it's it, it's large kind of quasi public. It's quasi public. And and so I think Kerma is an example of what the attorney general's office could potentially do in terms of regionalizing. Tell me more about this. So what would the what would the actions you would take be? OK, so. I think a, an ideal opportunity would be to have a conference of all 169 corporation councils, uh, like big towns and cities have corporation councils, smaller towns have town attorneys, but I'm not aware of any meeting or organization in the state of Connecticut led by the office of the attorney general, wherein the attorney general calls together all of his counterparts from all of the towns to find out what are the, the most pressing issues that the state can help you with. Right. Maybe it's pooling contracting. Maybe it's pooling bidding. You know, there was there was that that, that one suggestion many, many years ago about opening the state health insurance pool to towns. And I think the attorney general can play a vital role in helping lubricate and coordinate by tearing down legal barriers or figuring out. Star Wars, because he's the state lawyer, he could talk to city lawyers about what legal payouts they're facing, what legal challenges and how he could be then spurring. It could be legislation with the state or carrots and sticks for organization. Bring me back to the police brutality data. How does that. So when I when somebody calls me up and says, hey, the Waterbury Police Department threw me off of uh, I, I was climbing a brick wall to escape and the, the cop pushed me over and I cracked my wrist and cracked my elbow. <laughs> Is that a real call? Yes. Paul, I had, you feeling, would, I had a feeling you didn't make that one up, Ken. Paul, I, I, I will make up <laughs> nothing that I talk to you about. You don't understand the calls that I get. I'm famous in prison, and I get calls every day from people who are desperate for relief from the racist mass incarceration machine that grinds people into corpses. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I, when I bring up examples like that, they're real. So now how's the AG going to deal with it? Partly by trying to get good data from well, Kerma and the Corp Councils about exactly. what they're paying. And then what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You combine it with the Penn Act data that people like Andrew and Clark. And that's about Alvin, the, Alvin Penn State Center had a law that were collecting data on traffic stops by race. And, and you combine it with Penn Act data and you combine it with what Andrew Clark and the Institute for Municipal Policy Research at UConn is doing in downtown Hartford and, and, um, and try to figure out ways so Kerma can institute policies that say we're not going to insure this municipality for police brutality unless they do X, Y, and Z. Mm. Right. The attorney general's office. I mean, it was not fight people who necessarily. You know. Exactly. So one of the biggest frustrations I have with the way that the, the public safety division of the office of the attorney general of the state of Connecticut litigates cases is that they never look and say, geez. It looks like our guys really did something bad here. You're talking here about state police now. State police departments and corrections. Okay, let's mm -hmm. let's uh, we'll talk about. And have you been on the other side of some of those lawsuits against the state? I could talk about my cases all day long. Let's talk about Kara Tangretti. Okay, Kara Tangretti was doing a nonviolent financial crime offense at York Correctional Institute. She was sexually assaulted by four different correctional officers multiple times over the course of her incarceration. Okay, three of those officers raped her repeatedly. Um, all four of them were caught, prosecuted, and incarcerated. They were broke. Kara Tangretti is not going to be able to get any personal injury damages from these COs. So she sued supervisors. Okay. And William Tong's office defended this case so zealously against the supervisors. She won at the district court level. 
and survive summary judgment to take it to trial against one of the supervisors. William Tong appealed that and took it to the Second Circuit and got two Trump judges out of a, the third judge died before the panel uh, could issue its ruling. And William Tong got a decision that basically upends the post-World War II Nuremberg model of supervisory accountability. And so one of the concerns that I have about the way the Office of the Attorney General works is that when it sees constitutional violations, it tries to litigate its way out of them instead of admitting when the state does something wrong. Would part of the argument be a moral one? The state shouldn't support. And Harry wants you to uh, describe your interpretation of police brutality. But before we get there, is part of the reason moral and ethical, the state shouldn't stand for misconduct, but also practical that if it's not going to defend misconduct, there might be less of it moving forward? There's, there's also a third, which is if the Office of the Attorney General represents the people of the state of Connecticut, how is it beneficial to the Office of the Attorney General to, to ask a woman who gave birth in prison whether she could have had the baby on the bed or the toilet? How does that benefit anybody? When was that? That was in Tiana LaBoy's case, justice for Tiana. Tiana LaBoy gave birth on a, uh, on a toilet in a prison cell at York Correctional Institute. And, and I, I try to focus on York where I can because the women's health in the prisons is so much worse than the men's health. And what happened with her? And well, she gave birth to a baby in, in a prison cell and we sued. And the way that Attorney General Tong's office litigated the case was shameful. And how does it benefit the child? What did they do? Well, they, they asked my client if she could have had the baby on the bed instead of the toilet. You're like, what kind of misogynistic crap is that? That shouldn't come out of the office of the attorney and, and general. One of the uh, the nurse who attended said the baby took her first swim. Yeah, like the video is under so you got a protective a order. Thousand settlement from the DOC. Yeah. So that, and you're listening to Dateline New Haven. You took the to an attorney who wants to be the state's top civil attorney, Ken Krajewski, Green Party candidate or attorney general. So Ken, you were a journalist for years, then you went to law school, Quinnipiac, and you set up. You have a solo shop. Yes. Based in Hartford. Yes. And one of your um, one of your uh, specialties is suing the state. Yes. And uh, let me tell people about a few examples. You had a victory against the state requiring the state was requiring all inmates now have to have access to hepatitis C treatment. As a result, they now the state is spending 40 million dollars testing 20,000 people and curing a thousand a year of hepatitis. Well, it's not a year. It's oh, over total. the past three years. Since three years. August 6, 2019, 1,010 people have been cured of hepatitis C. And if you talk to State Representative Tony Walker, who's on the Appropriation Committee, who helped make this settlement happen because she helped appropriate the monies, this settlement forced, in part, the closure of Northern Correctional Institution. Hmm. So we, we litigate a better state of Connecticut by forcing the state to spend money on health care. It's a human right. And, it, and it's look, Medicare and Medicaid and, and other uh, state and federal agencies had long ago seen that uh, direct acting antivirals were were the standard of care for hepatitis C. And then, Ken, you mentioned the case a minute ago about Tiana LaVoy forced to give birth in a prison toilet. You got a two hundred fifty thousand dollars settlement. Another case was you got one point three million dollars for Wayne World. Yes. He's a black man who was in a was Department of Correction. Custody. He was told the stage four lymphoma was merely psoriasis. He was released before he died, but he was not diagnosed until his skin was melting off his body. Um, 
did uh, he got the money before he died or his yes. estate got it? Yes. And tell me about that suit. So um, Wayne had uh, started the lawsuit himself. And Wayne's theory of law, there's a lot of good prison lawyers um, who helped Wayne. And Wayne's theory of law was that the entire system where the University of Connecticut uh, Health Center had created a division called Correctional Managed Health. And this was out of Tom Ritter's uh, speakership in the late 90s. Um, and the, the state of Connecticut was throwing $100 million a year through the DOC to the University of Connecticut Health Center to provide healthcare and prisons. And it wasn't working very well because the memorandum of understanding between the two state agencies lacked accountability measures. And that was well known. The office of this public auditor, the, the office of the public uh, auditors, the accountants for the state um, had written about it. And Wayne um, had drafted a complaint that survived a motion to dismiss saying, look, Scott Semple is responsible for them, the not, commissioner. for them not diagnosing my cancer because he has cut the budget and he knows that mm -hmm. there's no accountability. And so I talked about Caratangretti before. The problem with the Caratangretti decision is that Scott Semple can no longer be held accountable for his mismanagement of the healthcare system. So I have emails that Scott Semple knew a dentist in Cheshire was pulling teeth that could be repaired. Instead of drilling cavities, he was simply pulling teeth. That is an Eighth Amendment constitutional violation. It's clear. There's plenty of precedent around the country that says dentists need to fill cavities and not pull teeth. When you lose teeth, you lose years off your life. It's, it's clear. Okay. Guess and, I'm going sooner than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so Scott, I had Scott Semple in a deposition in one of my cases. And I said to him after I got these emails, so did you did you follow up and do an investigation as to how many people lost their teeth in Cheshire Correctional? No. Did you ask anybody at Cheshire Correctional what corrective actions actions were taken in order to deal with this obvious constitutional violation? Nope. But because William Tong applied the architecture of the global war on terror to the way that we manage the Connecticut Department of Corrections, there is no supervisor who can be held liable for large-scale civil rights violations perpetrated by the state of Connecticut. So what? So that was Tangretti decision was after the Wayne world? Yes, Tangretti so came down you, in if December. Elected, will you undo this? I would try like hell. How would you do it? Um, well, here's something that's interesting. The federal court system sets the floor. It doesn't set the ceiling. Mm. We can, we don't have to litigate all the cases that we do, right? As I said before, the Department of Public Safety and the AG's office doesn't ever recognize that their guys did something wrong. They always fight you. Like mm -hmm. the, the hepatitis C case. I, I'm, I'd like to think that I'm a smart guy, but I just copied what they did in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Minnesota, right? There were, there were, in Colorado, some lawyers like me filed the same case against the office of the attorney general to get hepatitis C medication in Colorado. They settled it in two weeks. So in all four of these cases, the state fought you hard and all of them viciously. Were all of them were talking. Yes. So you in those four cases, you would have settled. Yeah. OK, so here's my question. Ken Krask, I'm going to ask you what the conservative is going to say about this. They're going to say, shouldn't the attorney general look out for not the taxpayers by fighting lawsuits 
instead of just settling for lots of money. So then everyone will just sue. Wayne World's son is a taxpayer. Mm. Tiana LaBoy's daughter will be a taxpayer. Tiana, Tiana LaBoy's mom, who has custody of the baby born in prison, is a taxpayer. Billy Bennett's family are taxpayers. Patsy Kamara's family are taxpayers. I can go on. I can go on. You know, everybody who's in prison has family that's paying taxes. Everybody who's in prison has interest in the way that the state of Connecticut is run. And, and I, at this point in my existence, I'm going to say something really not popular, but I think that the Department of Corrections is a slush fund for the correctional officers unions, and it exists solely to create a jobs program for allegedly good people against society's declaration of those who are bad. And, and it's, it's frustrating because in 1980, the state of Connecticut had a prison population of 3000 people. In 2010, the state of Connecticut had a prison population of 21,000 people. What accounts for uh, an increase, a sevenfold increase in prison population? It's come back down, right? But now it's, it's gone it, back up it, again. But it's down to, it's at like 10. We're still threefold over 1980. It's gone back up. Yeah. It's, it, so what explanation do we have other than Ronald Reagan? I, I don't have a good one. And when I say Ronald Reagan, I'm You're saying the war on drugs. I'm talking about the war on drugs, which is shorthand minimum sentences, which is shorthand for racist policies of mass incarceration that the state of Connecticut hasn't been able to quit. And in and, and the increase of the police state, like why does a town like Watertown need like 50 officers? I mean, it's not like they're going after people who commit wage and hour violations. It's not like they're going after people who, who, you know, <clears throat> white people who sell drugs in the suburbs. You know, they're not they're not doing that. They're they're going after. And, and I don't think that police are are able to appropriately deal with violent crime with the methodologies that they use now. Ken Krasky running for attorney general, one of the points that incumbents make when they run for attorney general for another term like William Tong is they bring boatloads of money into the state. That's a revenue generator. They join with other attorneys general and they do lawsuits against big corporations who have polluted or poisoned people or killed people, whether it's jewels. We got $438.5 million multi-state settlement about opioids, $60 million from Frontier for their screwing up the service, $22 million here for false settlement claims for 34 states on kickbacks from an optical lens. Every day we get the press releases or every week at least about tons of money coming in from these settlements against these corporations. Is that a good part of the, of the office that they're doing right? I, I think so. And I think it's low hanging fruit. And I think there's a lot more money out there to be made for the state of Connecticut. And, and why doesn't the state of Connecticut do what Javier Becerra, the attorney general of California did and sue Uber? As for misclassifying drivers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wage and hour laws in uh, both federal and state allow for attorney's fees, right? Why doesn't the AG's office go after Uber? So William Tong, actually, actually George Jepson and William Tong that was joined, predecessor George Jepson. joined Javier Becerra to sue Uber when there was a data breach, when privacy information of, of uh, Uber clients was released. But why didn't Tong join Javier Becerra in, in going after the, the sort of motherload of the, of the corporate model of Uber, which is gig economy drivers who aren't employees, but sort of utilize their cars? And the Uber drivers are employees. It's so interesting that you, I'm with you on this one. The Uber drivers demonstrating last week said they actually were not for the bill that would make them employees. They just want the company to have to pay minimum health care and 
show how much they're getting from each ride for real and make it more. It's interesting. It's 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 fascinating, but there's got to be there has to be an adult in the room who can help the sides negotiate. And and I think the attorney general, that's a, a different context. The attorney general's office can help sides negotiate and help sides come to um, <clears throat> because litigation is is war by other means. And very few cases go to trial. Everything settles. And that's the art of negotiation and mediation. Ken Krajewski, Green Party candidate for attorney general in the state of Connecticut. Tell me about eviction, housing and foreclosure. That's a big issue in the state. Is there much? And it, you can't do everything as attorney general or certain places you have. You know, you talked about thinking creatively how you can deal with regionalism mm -hmm. and local policies on uh, rewarding or not rewarding through insurance for how you deal with police brutality. What about um, what about uh, how the we're coming up on a new foreclosure eviction crisis? The protections of the pandemic are ending. Um, what are we what are we going to do about that? Is there anything the AG can do on a civil side? So I'm I'm not sure. I've I've thought about housing somewhat. And I really don't understand why we simply can't, as a community, provide everybody with a one-bedroom apartment at a reasonable rate. I just, I, I feel like we have a huge homelessness crisis in Hartford, in New Haven, and uh, we have a, 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 an untold homelessness crisis of young people who can't afford rents that couch surf. And <clears throat> we need to figure out solutions to these. And um, part of it is the city of Hartford hiring more housing inspectors than police officers, right? The part of it is, is, is the housing inspection. Part of it is the fair rent piece. Part of it is 8230G, which is, you know, fighting the, the nimbyism in the suburbs against affordable housing. There's, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. One of, one of the things that I often play what if with is what if Wes Horton and John Britton didn't drop the housing component of Chef versus O'Neill? Because the original Chef versus O'Neill case had a had a count that said housing segregation is both de facto and de jure. And they, there were some people believed that housing patterns were at the root of school segregation. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what I was talking about earlier in Watertown. It's not a mistake that the elementary school. Let's talk about Chef versus O'Neill because that's been coming up a lot. Um, that was the lawsuit father. I believe it was around the early 90s by late, uh, late 80s. Late 80s. John Britton on, uh, in Hartford area. Yes. About how, these, how segregated the schools were. The case went on for many years. The state fought it, but eventually there was a settlement. Yes. And the AG fought it. And then there was a settlement. And all those years, my wife covered it pretty intensely back in time. She's a journalist. And I remember she interviewed John Britton, who was the lead attorney in that case a lot. And he said, you caused the problem in the state. You have to fix it. Because the question always is, what's the remedy? And then what the state did in response was to open slots for urban kids and suburban schools. Magnet schools. And more magnet schools. And I'm not sure that has helped. In New Haven, it's the white kids often from the city who get the spots in the suburban school. Or I know a bunch of black parents who went to Woodbridge schools, which are white, and they actually weren't happy with that. They said the culture was too rough. They'd rather they had more money for their schools. I always thought back then, what is the solution? Like, it's wrong. It's illegal under our Constitution. Very good ruling by the court. But has anyone really come up with like whether the causes are human nature, housing policy, zoning policy related to that or steering kids or how you do funding? What is the solution? Why do we have like 150 different superintendents for 150 different school districts? You know, we're, we have a redundancy built into the way that we manage schools in the state of Connecticut. And, and I think that a, a 50,000 foot view 
of, I talked about fiefdoms earlier, and that's one of the fiefdoms that I think is problematic is that every town is very, these are our kids. Now, those are your kids. And I've always been with you on regionalization. I do find that some people in cities, especially of color, don't like the idea because they say if New Haven's 135,000 people and we're in an area with where the, whatever the regions can be defined as 600, 700,000 white suburbanites are going to control it. So how about how about we do this? Instead of messing with the educational cost sharing formula or instead of giving CREC, which is Capital Region Education Council up in Hartford, they're, they're, I'm not sure what they said CREC. <laughs> um, CREC is, is the, the acronym for the, the unintended consequence of CHEF, which is the massive magnet, regional magnet school. Right. I don't know that that's really worked to help with segregation. So it, it, in, in, you know, it has had benefits. Okay, and I have to I have to when I'm talking about chef, I have to do full disclosure. My wife was a plaintiff in chef. Will Delise Bermudez was uh, so Milo chef was the African-American plaintiff. Will Delise, oh, wow. Pedro and Ava Bermudez were the Puerto Rican plaintiffs. And Pedro's right here. Your father in law in the studio. And he was one of the uh, people who he was a school teacher in, in Hartford in the 1980s and saw the problems that his students faced. And, and I'm so proud of what my wife and her family helped accomplish, right? They, they brought an issue to the forefront and it's huge. Um, and the Connollys were the white family from West Hartford that, that whose children were plaintiffs. So chef, um, the unintended consequences of chef though, is to, to starve certain school districts of money and flood tons of state money into these regional outfits like crack that don't necessarily um, fix the problem. And I think, why don't we just say the state of Connecticut is going to run every school system. We're a small state, 3.5 million people. It's, it's smaller than the Houston or Los Angeles public school system. It's smaller than the New York City public school system. Why do we need 150 different school districts? And why can't we say, why does, why does Greenwich get to spend $25,000 or something like that per pupil per year? And the city of New Haven only gets to spend $17,000 per pupil. higher special needs. I would argue that rather than cutting Greenwich, though, you just spend more money overall. So everybody has enough. Exactly. I'm, I'm Harry Droz says school choice, which is sort of the conservative argument. Let the parents take the money where they want to go. Is the and, argument and, that therefore you're not changing the structural problem yes. that consigns the and, vast and, majority of people to few choices. Yes. And and then you get into the whole, well, school choice. I want to take my voucher and put it into a, a religious school. So if you were school. attorney general, would that be what you would have sought at the settlement? I Probably. I probably would have directed the department of. So one of the most powerful things that the attorney general's office do is to atorn attorneys, atorn. What right? does that mean? Atorn. It's like you, you provide advice. I the root of the word. Yeah. You provide advice and counsel to your clients. And so the attorney general can be really smart and go to the department of education and say, Hey, if we did it this way, maybe we could solve this problem and this problem. And there may be an unintended consequence, but that unintended consequence is possibly less than the other problems. My job as an attorney, when people come to me, they come to me with problems that have taken years to make and I have to undo it. And it takes years to undo the problem. And what we do is solve problems. I always joke that you're only coming to me because the shit has hit the fan and I have to clean it off or well, you need help cleaning it off. And, and, um, well, Ken, before I let you get back to cleaning, we are kind of running low on time. I wanted to make sure we get to the point about the Green Party. So you're running as a third party candidate that you've been involved in Green Party campaigns over the years. Cliff Thornton, who ran a marijuana legalization campaign way before its time, turned out to be the consensus and now we legalized. 
what uh, and often third parties do that. Third parties recognize where to go outside the current discourse, and the current discourse catches up with it. Why are you running third party? What's wrong with the two party system? So the two party system is a statutory creature, meaning state law has enshrined that both of these institutions, which are nominally private institutions with their own bylaws, will provide the candidates. Yeah, that's why you, by the way, if you get elected, I want you to get rid of this thing where you register our voters. If three candidates run and a Democrat or Republican loses, they still get to be in there because of state law that says you always have to have Democrat. That's that's cartel behavior. Yeah, no, it's it. And it is it is cartel behavior. And, and you know, Paul, we were right in 2006. Cliff Thornton was right. And I paid a price. I paid a terrible, terrible what price. price. I got arrested for advocating for Cliff Thornton. My January 3rd, 2007 arrest was a direct result of my advocacy on behalf of Cliff Thornton. I paid a price for that. And, and it and it sucked. And it was I had a special class in law school that nobody else had, which was litigating against the office of the attorney general because I, I hired Norm Pattis. <laughs> I apologize, world. No, Norm had a lot of great cases over the years. As soon as the TV cameras disappeared, Norm skedaddled and left me with an associate who got run around and the, the attorney generals ran circles around. And it, but the thing is, we couldn't even win that case. And, and it, it, it was frustrating to me, but. The Green Party has been right about student loan cancellation, about free college tuition, about Medicare for all, about mass transit, about in, in investment in the infrastructure, about ending the war in Iraq, about ending American military uh, involvement overseas. You know, how many military bases do we have around the globe? We can't even count. Hundreds. You know, the Green Party has been right about green infrastructure and being carbon neutral and, and combating climate change. There is significant oppression of third parties on the ballot. And, and you know, I, I, I went camping this weekend with my daughter and some friends. And one of the girls said to me, a friend was joking that I was a political prisoner. And, it, and, and I had to explain to a nine-year-old what happened 15 years ago. And, and it, it's shocking to say that Connecticut can have political prisoners because of the two-party system. And what we haven't been able to confront and what the Democrats aren't confronting right now is that one of the parties in the two party structure has lost the compass. One of the parties in the two party system now says elections are only valid if we win. And that is a dangerous position, especially when the Democrats always whine and moan like hit dogs holler when the Republicans do something that's that's potentially fascist, like the global war on terror. But then the Democrats adopt that and use it in, in governance, like with I talked about supervisory liability. And, and so you have the Democrats that are unable to approach the situation where one of the parties in the two party structure has lost the plot and has gone hard right authoritarian. And we don't have any civic institutions that can step in and fill the power vacuum. And it's it's imperative that we talk about how to build alternatives. We need to build. So you're saying vote for Ken Krayewski for Green Party candidate for attorney general on November 8th. You're saying and one thing he's going to bring a new idea is that the state doesn't always have to defend cops, correction workers who brutalize people. You can actually settle the cases and move for systemic change. Good way to summarize it. That's perfect. Paul. When I think about the big, what I heard today, a lot of great ideas. You're so interesting to talk to Ken. I could have gone on for hours. Yeah. And thanks, thank Paul. you for making this a more interesting campaign, Ken. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for doing all that. So you how do people Paul. find out more about your campaign? 
Um, I, I like basically I've been telling people that my law firm and what I do on an everyday basis is is who I am and what I stand for. And so I, I, ha I don't have the time nor the money to set up a campaign infrastructure. We're running through the Green Party. So look at the state Connecticut Green Party website. Look at my personal website, which is not a campaign website. It's just what my law firm is. I'm there's I have to draw a hard line uh, ethically as to what is what. But I, I tell people what I do every day is is what I perceive as leadership. I take extraordinary financial risks to okay. prosecute civil rights violations. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. But leadership is putting yourself out there and pushing hard for the world that you want to see. All right. And I want to thank Nora Grace Flood doing a great job behind the controls today while we're all praying for Harry Joseph, the station manager, to get better fast. Ken Krieski, candidate for attorney general. K-R-A-Y. E-S-K-E. -E. Used to be a formidable byline, is now a formidable attorney's handle. And if he gets his way, it'll be the Attorney General of Connecticut. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD of Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm -hmm.